I'm feeling awful, uh, awfully groggy this morning, and I had a non-trivial fight with the microwave this morning. What do you suppose that means, guys? It sounds like we lost an hour of sleep. Yeah, I, I lost an hour of sleep, and now the clocks are wrong. <laughs> Just so you know, guys, A, it's a weekend. Yeah. Save for the fact that we're doing this this morning. But you guys don't have kids, so you're not losing anything. You can just sleep in any way. Except for the show. That's, that's what I mean. Save yeah, for the you know fact what you can do this. with kids, Mike? You just put them to bed like 15 minutes early for four <laughs> days in work. a row. Kids have biological clocks and they just wake up. You're right, because kids aren't trainable at all. They're, <laughs> They're like not. these wild monsters. Like, it's I like, know you're being... I know you're being facetious, but it's true. It's like Lord of the Flies <laughs> when you walk into a preschool, really. I feel like this is an argument only one of us is qualified to have. <laughs> Although not, right. not unlike not unlike a bus versus uh, self-driving vehicle discussion we were having this week, but no, that's I I've, story. I've driven for over an hour, maybe <laughs> two hours in the last few days. I'm definitely that's, qualified. That's but impressive. As we discussed, <laughs> this is what we're going to talk about in the after show because otherwise it's going to take up the entire show talking about Google self-driving car because we now have video. Also, I'd just like to go on record as saying that uh, yesterday I drove for 10, so there's that, mm -hmm. and minutes? hours, <laughs> 10 minutes. hours, Mike, hours, <laughs> and when I worked at SGS Lakefield, that was at least... A three-hour round trip, every single shift for that year. So uh, it's, it's crazy that that just, happened. Uh, you just check your driving superiority there, Mike. <laughs> but yes, as as I mentioned, we're going to talk about that because we, if you look at Twitter, we clearly have a lot to say on the matter, and I'm not sure we're actually going to get to any kind of consensus, but we're at least going to discuss the the video. And, uh, yeah, but in, in follow-up, we don't have that much follow-up. So hopefully we can take less than 25 minutes to get through it this week. What uh, are we, if not a venue for failed, for failed dialectics? It's Rob? absolutely, that's absolutely true. Um, I was reading this week and I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by all things space that the third theme of our podcast after science and technology is space, space. And, uh, so we learned this week that mars the mars mission is now tentatively back on uh the mars mission that was canceled by nasa was it late last year or early this year they they were about to kind of launch this mission they were about to give it a go-ahead to go and then something there was some kind of problem that was discovered either in software or in the actual hardware of the, the lander or the rover or something uh and so they had to scrub the the thing and they were saying that because of the way the orbits work uh, of Mars and Earth, it was going to be a while. Like they weren't going to be able to just do this. But now they've announced that uh, the mission is back on. It has a, a new start date. It's I think 2018. But it's yeah, they have to wait a couple of years until the orbits mm -hmm. line up again to make it to make it actually possible to to get to Mars in with any kind of quick. Uh, like it, it's six months, I think. Even if they're ideal, so it's like a year and a half or something. If they if they try to leave when it's not ideal but yeah 
Hmm. The uh, it's called the Insight Mission, and that's going to be launching in 2018, as opposed to this year. I thought I think it was supposed to be around this time. It's supposed to be around March, April of 2016, but it's pushed back. But it's at least not canceled completely. Is there? There's not tectonic activity on Mars, is there? No, there so, was. I think at some point. So are they using like active seismic? Because it's a seismometer, they were troubleshooting. They're right. trying to solve, and it's the idea is to s- discover what's inside Mars, as far as the interior. Right. And so the only way would be there to actually have a seismic source like dynamite or a vibration source. Sure. Or to just monitor seismic activity that occurs naturally. Mm-hmm. It, so it's yeah. interesting to know what they're planning on doing. Yeah, there might be seismic activity of so, like a small amount, but I'm pretty sure that I've read. Maybe I'm thinking about uh, the moon, but like I think it's kind of geologically dead. There's no activity in its core or anything like that. But I, was I don't actually that, know. Say, unlike driving, Mike actually might be the only person qualified to talk about this. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> although he doesn't. He's the one asking the question, so I don't know. Because I thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, something, I mean, I imagine it would make sense to have a seismometer on your Mars lander, but I'm not sure exactly what they'd be trying to measure with it. Seismic activity? Well, they're measuring seismic activity to yeah. look, to image the inside of Mars. Yeah, right. sorry, that was just a subtle joke that just died. It's, yeah. So, if, yeah. What, would they, doing, what would they measure with a seismometer? Seismic activity, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> if they're going to be doing any kind of... Well, I forget, is it called sounding or ranging where you like try to detect vibrations through the core to figure out what the makeup is? Like that's what they do on Earth. Yeah. But if you don't have two kind of landing sites with, with equipment like across the planet, you're not going to really – like there's nothing to send signals and then but, receive it unless you're sending them from the same spot and waiting for them to come back. But that's the thing you're not sending though, because if it occurs naturally, then that just happens anyway. Yeah. 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 But I mean, if you're, if you're going to be trying to figure out what's going on based on like explosions or activity or something, you'd have to either, I guess, wait for like a meteor to strike or something. Right. Well, and generally the seismic sources aren't large enough to make it across the planet. That's why you wait for earthquakes. Right. Do you think that seismic or, uh, you know, the, all the seismic activity monitoring that goes on in California. Do you think they know when a good Mythbusters episode is coming up? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Although, I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with the last season. It just ended last week, I think, was the last one. I have not. It uh, They got some pretty big explosions going on. The Mythbusters Measured... have big explosions going on? No, but I mean like well, extremely large. Mm. Like finale large. Okay. And they were filming them with 5,000 frame, 50,000 frames a second high speed in 1080, like the absolute top of the line high speed cameras. Hmm. I, I love the no Mythbusters. In case that wasn't already known, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's common knowledge, but who knows? Nick, you have some follow up here about food. I'm not sure why it's follow up, but I um, trust you. Well, if you go back to our nutrition episode and you look at the notes, Mm -hmm. I have notes in there on the Brazilian food guide and I don't think we got to it 
in the show. Okay. But I like my question for our guest whose name escapes me at the moment. Anna on Anna on my question for Anna was regarding beans. And at the time I had heard that the Brazilian food guide recommended uh, at least one serving of beans a day. And I wanted yeah. to know more about that. So it was just this past week that I thought back to that and went, huh, I wonder what the Brazilian food guide is actually like, because it's been in the news again lately. So I okay. read the whole thing available in English. Um, very interesting. And in this current edition, anyway, it's not so much that they say you should get at least one serving of beans a day, but they have like, like Canada's food guide. They have just little examples of things you can cook that are healthy okay, or meals that you can serve that are a good idea. Sure. And so, I mean, they have breakfasts. The breakfasts are interesting to look at because they're a lot of them are nothing like what we would eat. But then almost every single lunch or dinner idea they have, almost every single one has rice and beans on the plate. Mm. Like it's usually a little section of rice, little section of beans, salad, and then, you know, whatever. Some other protein. They also dedicate like a good page or or page to a few pages on beans themselves to talk about them. Mm -hmm. And they say that they are very low calorie and very filling. So that is why they recommend beans. It's worth noting too, that their examples generally don't include meat. They do talk about it, but yeah, not so. So lunch, lunch, the examples, one has a chicken leg, the other has an omelet uh the other has are we not considering chicken and meat no i'm i'm just saying <laughs> so lunch is an exception that one actually has some right. meats yeah, yeah but dinner has lentils beans uh this one has fish and then beans and beans so okay beans, as, as beans, the beans and beans yeah <laughs> it's like spam from the monty python <laughs> skit yeah this this food guide is incredibly detailed. Yeah. Yeah, they went all out. And another interesting thing to note about the Brazilian food guide is that they actually take time to differentiate between uh between processed and unprocessed foods. So they'll say like unprocessed is good minimally processed is also good so minimally processed being like ground meat as opposed to just a hunk of meat because it hasn't Mm -hmm. fundamentally changed it's just you know a slightly different form or you know taking the core out of an apple taking the peel off a banana that kind of stuff that's that would be classed as minimal processing and they're okay with that for the most part right but canada's food guide would say you know a hot dog is the same thing as a serving of meat which you know not really true yeah Yeah. from a nutritional (laughs) standpoint anyway for sure yeah this thing is crazy this food guide it's it's beautiful i'm impressed yeah one they'll they'll talk about you know preparation methods it's like you know don't use too much salt don't use too much oil 
add herbs to make it more tasty. Yeah, like it's 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 really in depth. Like they did a great job. And then I go to the Canada Food Guide websites, and it's like, are we even trying? <laughs> like, it seems like we came up with this website in the mid '90s and decided that's that's it. That's where we're going with this. Yeah, that's the new standard. There's even like modes of eating. So it's like eating regularly, eating in company, eating it's in crazy. appropriate environments. That's amazing. <laughs> Look at the I, racially diverse table of people. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so easy because they like it's such a diverse country. Like South America is probably like I think a lot more diverse than than North America at least. Although that may be changing. I think it might be getting better, but it's I don't think they have as much of a problem kind of promoting diversity. I think it just kind of is a thing. Yeah, our, well I'm looking now at the is it the Health Canada page on the food guide that you're talking about? Yeah. Cuz it just follows the the 90s government of Canada aesthetic more than being stuck in the 90s. It's just following their terrible outdated guidelines. I mean this this 80 page food guide from Brazil is great, but there's no rainbow. So how do I, was I looking know for the rainbow? How yeah. do I know what I'm supposed to be eating without a rainbow or a pyramid or, yeah. you know, a, a, my plate available? Like, yeah, you, uh, you say 80 pages, this thing, these pages are each two pages. <laughs> okay. So it's an 80 page PDF. Yeah. And book style. It goes double up to 76 and then 77 is single sided. So, uh, 159 page food guide, I guess. Good Lord. It's like a book. Yeah. It it literally is a book. (laughs) Oh, Hey, look, they have page numbers. They do have page numbers. 150 page because titles are a thing. Yeah. Here you go. But yeah, much more detail that I'm, I'm actually going to read this when you, when you started talking about it, I was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll go take a glance at it to see what I can glean, but it's going to take, it would take like a few days to read through this all, (laughs) but I might actually do it. It looks really detailed and like not just talking about the kinds of foods, but like you mentioned the, the fact that there's a difference between processed and non-processed foods. They've, they've also got a couple uh, salad ideas in there that look pretty tasty just all eat like brazilians and walk like egyptians (laughs) i got i got no references coming i'm sorry no let the show down there's there's no reason to we don't need more references that one went that one took the cake so cake being a highly processed food by the way yeah absolutely nick is it though it is it can be uh i guess if you make your own cake it doesn't have to be no no like the sugar is refined and the flour is often refined and but if you make it yourself it doesn't have to be you could use like whole raw flour and you could use yeah raw sugar you you could you could could. most people don't it's true you could (laughs) nick i have in our main topics ordered these things in such a way that there's no good segue and so Speaking of no good segue, I want to move to your your kale story here now. 
the seaweed bacon kale. Yes. How's that not a segue from Food Guide, Rob? Come on. That's what I'm saying. That. So, Never mind. Okay, so. <laughs> so, Nick, uh, I noticed the Brazilian Food Guide really recommends uh, getting lots of fruits and vegetables. Now, I think you have a story in here about uh, fruits and vegetables. Well, that's right. I do, Rob. Thanks. It turns out that <laughs> that scientists have discovered or manufactured. Discovered. <laughs> yeah. Scientists have developed a strain of go. seaweed that is twice as healthy as kale and tastes like bacon, particularly when you fry it up. Apparently, when you fry this stuff up, it, like the bacon aroma really gets going. It's also funny because, you know, they were actually trying to find a good, what is it, a good food source for edible sea snails or abalone. Okay. And my head went right back to the Simpsons. It's like, I didn't say I wanted abalone sandwich. I said I wanted an abalone sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and abalone is snails so rich people food and so suddenly that joke is so much funnier too. yeah yeah <laughs> i i'm intrigued by this because the the lead photo is a picture of bacon but it looks like it looks like they're trying to say that it looks like bacon but it doesn't it probably yeah. doesn't look anything like bacon it probably just looks like seaweed no, if you follow the link a little farther down, you will see the sea. Or wait, that's a type of seaweed. Yeah, yeah that's, that's not that's it's seaweed. a seaweed that yeah. probably looks similar. Yeah, yeah. But I imagine it's, to get this to be kind of consumed mainstream, you'd have to like they make seaweed paper, and they'd probably have to make something like that, but maybe a little thicker because they said it's reddish. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, you don't have to. But I, to get it, like, oh, you know, I, I put this bacon uh, seaweed on my sandwich. You'd want it to look like bacon to appeal to the, the hipster crowd. Well, maybe. But I would think. A, you could also just, like, instead of lettuce, just throw that on there. Yeah. Another brief little point on this is they say, you know... Uh, you might have to try really hard to get people to eat seaweed here, but they do it in Northern Europe all the time. And yeah. I, and I thought about it. I was like, no, people eat it here. I know for a fact, some friends of my family are from Nova Scotia mm -hmm. and I guess one of the last times they went back, they, they dedicated a section of their trip to going into the ocean to harvest more seaweed so they could eat it. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a thing. People eat it. Well, they they sell dried seaweed, like the sheets that you're talking yeah. about, Rob. Yeah, and it's this marketed as a snack. Like you just pop a sheet oh, yeah. into your mouth and like, eat it, and it's very salty. Yeah. But. Well, because they salt it heavily. Yeah, it would right. have to but, be. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the Costco method. But <laughs> I I have seen people just go to town on the thicker stuff. I guess. Oh right? yeah. Hmm. Or I seem to recall. Like I the was unprocessed, very young, but sorry. The unprocessed form. Well, yeah, because like, I mean, they're buying it and or not buying it. They're not buying it. That was the point of my story. They're right. They're right. pulling it out of the ocean and then just. Right. 
I don't know what exact preparations go, but I'm sure it's not grind it down and then create a paper. Right. Right. I'm I'm intrigued by one line in this article where it says that they think that vegan and vegetarian markets may be interested. I think that's a really interesting kind of tweak because I I feel the opposite. I feel like vegans and vegetarians would be like, I don't care about bacon flavoring, so why would I care about this just because it tastes like bacon? But maybe no, I'm wrong. Maybe. Bacon. It maybe depends why you're universal. a vegan yeah. or a vegetarian. It's true. Right? Yeah. If you love bacon and you've just been waiting to have something that tastes like bacon again, maybe this is the yeah. product of your dreams. I mean, are you familiar with Daya cheese? No. Okay. Day of cheese? D-A-I-Y-A. Daya cheese. Gotcha. Daya cheese, maybe? Die of cheese. You're overthinking it. <laughs> anyway, um, so Dea cheese was an invention from a few years back, and I remember reading interviews about it because there's a whole big thing about how vegans and vegetarian, or it would be vegans, they often missed grilled cheese, mm-hmm. but no vegan cheese really melted properly, and so then they came up with Dea cheese. And they're also offering day of cheese at like Panago Pizza now. Places like that. Chains have picked it up just because it actually melts like normal cheese would. <laughs> but I am here to tell you that it does not taste like cheese. The first sure. time my sister was cooking with day of cheese, I walked into the kitchen and I was actually kind of disgusted at the smell. No, sorry. I wasn't kind of disgusted. I was actually <laughs> disgusted. I was like did something go bad and we're now cooking with it? And she's like, no, no, it's, it's day of cheese. And I went, it's not on any of my food, is it? And she's like, no, I, I wouldn't do that to a non-vegan that wasn't suspecting it. You just, you don't give day of cheese to someone who's not ready for it. What's the appeal of this? It's cheesy, but it's also vegan. But how is it cheesy if it smells terrible? I it's, guess there's some some stinky cheese. It's the closest yeah. thing to cheese. It it also melts as cheese would. Mm-hmm. So it's as close to that mouthfeel as you're going to get as a vegan. <laughs> I find this so interesting. So I, so I miss the, the mouthfeel of cheese. The point of this whole, <laughs> well, I mean, a grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, people eat grilled cheese with craft singles. So yeah, or like just processed plasticky cheese right and so i really don't actually you know what it probably does taste a lot like that but the i don't know where was i going with this i don't know <laughs> you're justifying the existence of dea cheese in light <laughs> oh, yeah, of it being disgusting probably I'm, well okay that's right because i was like well i think craft singles are disgusting too but people eat those um yeah, if people are willing to eat Daya cheese because they miss cheese or cheese-like products, mm-hmm. I'm certain they will eat this seaweed because it tastes like bacon. I guess so. I mean, that that seems anecdotally like a great reason to at least try to market this. And that's really what we're shooting for here is anecdotal justification. Well, that's all we have until they try. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I have a pea soup recipe that calls for bacon, but... Like bacon's expensive, so 
depending on the cost of this seaweed, I would happily just make the pea soup with this seaweed for the like smoky flavor to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, that seems reasonable. Yeah. Roots and veggies, man. Mm. But also, bacon is delicious. <laughs> you know what else is delicious? Plastic. <laughs> to some, segue, to some organisms, anyway. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot like that processed cheese. I think they taste very similar. Yeah. Plastic and that processed cheese. <laughs> yeah. but Thermoplastic plastics. Let's be won't clear. Won't someone tell us about an interesting organism that likes to eat plastic yeah so this is a story that i came across and i i don't know if you guys will agree but i know that i have been saying this to as many people as will listen for a long time that everyone is very very concerned and i mean rightfully so objectively that we're filling our oceans and landfills with plastic because there are no organisms on earth spoiler alert uh, for the future, or at least foreshadowing <laughs> alert, uh, there are no organisms that will break down plastic. So it just, <gasps> kind of, it just stays in our environment for, I mean, scientists have been theorizing 10,000 years, 20,000 years. It just, it, it just will stick around. And as soon as I heard that, I was thinking to myself, you know what? Bacteria reproduce really quickly. They're very adaptable and they will find an energy rich food source and eat it. And Life will uh, 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 <laughs> find a way. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I knew deep down that there was a very high likelihood that some kind of bacteria would evolve to at least partially break down some kinds of plastic. And so the, the news that came out this week uh, is about a, one specific type of bacteria. It's the second type they found that breaks down another, like a type of plastic. And it just so happens that this the bacteria, uh, the strain that they found will or can the, at least start to consume uh, PET, which is polyethylene terephthalate, I believe. It's the most common form of plastic. It's the most it's like the the one that you can recycle anywhere like styrofoam is plastic. There's like polyurethane, there's PVC, there's all kinds of sort of niche plastics. But PET is the one that like your plastic water bottle is made of. It's it's the the main plastic. And even though it's not necessarily a perfect process yet, they say it takes a pretty long time for it to break down even small amounts. That's what kind of, that's what evolution is. Over multiple generations of bacteria, they're going to slowly develop and adapt to be able to break this plastic down perfectly. And then because there's so much plastic waste out there right now, these bacteria are quickly going to take over the world uh, on a small scale, so to speak. And probably just break all of this down back into kind of i don't know if it's co2 and water but we'll probably break this down pretty quickly and rid the world within a few hundred years of at least a scourge of plastic and things will probably be okay it's it's worth noting that the first thing they discovered was a fungus not yeah. a bacteria sure that's yeah yeah um so that that's the significance of this is that bacteria seems to process it a lot faster yeah. than the fungus would. Yep. Um, now, I was thinking because plastic is a petroleum product that the bacteria, if they had previously been able to process petroleum-type mm -hmm. things and then they just adapted to the processed petroleum that plastic is. It, so, because I, 
I, I'm just curious about how this bacteria, because obviously this bacteria didn't come about in the last 70 years. Like I'm yeah. assuming it existed. It's in been a, around. Yeah. It's been around and then evolves to the point where now it can froze the plastic. And it seems like, or this article said that plastic is the only thing it eats. It's not that it can, it's that it, that's all it eats is plastic. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting that it, it got to that point where that's all it eats. It's not even like it maintained some elements of its previous diet. Yeah. That it's it's now to the in the form where, where it only eats plastic. So I think it's uh yeah, it's it's definitely the kind of thing where you could just sprinkle it over a landfill and start breaking down whatever it is that's in there. Yeah. I'm imagining you walking around with like a salt shaker full of like <laughs> instant yeast form of this bacteria yeah. just shake 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 it's like, ah yes it is perfectly seasoned now <laughs> i don't know when you became french mike but it happened um so i've posted a link from nature the journal nature from 2011 in the show notes okay i believe i could be wrong but i believe that was the first reporting of a bacteria that flourished on plastic in the pacific gyre yeah having said that i read the first few paragraphs and they did not harvest it from the pacific gyre they harvested it from the north atlantic the sargasso sea of uh wide sargasso sea fame in which (laughs) the book does not actually talk much about the sargasso sea but there you go right um but there are like mike's right there are also uh microbial species that flourish on just raw oil from earthquakes on the ocean floor or the wonderfully named seepage that can happen on (laughs) the earth's surface (laughs) incidentally um i took kaya to the waterton lakes national park yesterday Mm -hmm. and way up in the mountains there they have the first uh oil well from western canada the first sight of it anyway and it's hilarious because like you know now we've got people like mike who are trying to drill down to like with all sorts of fancy technology to get to really really deep deposits and tricky areas to get to but the first well in western canada was oh hey look there's actual oil on the surface it's just seeping up to the surface I bet if we drilled down like 30 feet or so, we could get more oil. Production yep. of that well peaked at a barrel a day. <laughs> Did it actually? Yeah. Wow. Like Naturally? Like without any sort of artificial lift? It just seeped a barrel a day? Uh, I don't remember. They eventually did put in like a, a oh, pump, like a pump jack pump. kind of yeah. thing. Or oh. no, not a not a pump jack, but a tower mike we need to talk about oil production because (laughs) i know so little but uh it was really cool like they said the the first steps to it were just kind of scraping off the surface and then this is in water lake waterton lakes at the top of a mountain and then they would just like walk the bucket down (laughs) on a horse (laughs) or something like that yeah yeah which yeah my how far we've come (laughs) <laughs> like there was better technology in the movie there will be blood great movie by the way yeah wait what 
I, I don't. I haven't. Heard yeah, I haven't movie. seen it. It's too scary okay. for me. Okay, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. Like the way my cousin described this movie to me was, uh, he sat down in the theater with his friend who brought him to see it, and just, you know, you sit down and all of a sudden you're riveted, and then. He's like, oh, geez, I'm getting warm. I better just take my coat off. He's like, you know, we've been here probably like half an hour or so. I'll take my coat off. And his friend leans over. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm getting comfortable for the rest of the movie. He's like, the movie's over in 10 minutes. And it's like a three-hour movie. (laughs) Like you just, it sucks you right in. You got to watch it. I love it. Kaya hates it. And you got to watch it. Cool. This uh, this is one of those movies that might suffer from title confusion. Yeah. Because there's a horror movie that has a title that's very similar to this. And I think that that is this, but it's not. I don't know what I'm thinking of exactly, but. Yeah, I'm a little confused based on your description there. There Will Be well, Blood is a movie about oil. Okay. I'm an oil man. So there's a, it's like the joke in, was that How I Met Your Mother? Where I think Robin's trying to watch 28 Days, but she was watching 28 yeah, Days later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the exact same like problem. That, yeah. I don't know what the title of this the movie is, but that is all I can think of. And yeah. so I have I have avoided this movie at all costs simply because of, I mean, not not saying I would have seen it otherwise, but yeah, I just. Yeah, it sounds interesting though. Yeah. You You got to watch it. Also, Mike, I will come and work at your office and then we can walk around going, I'm an OL man. Yeah. And it'll be hilarious because Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, you know, you know, what's a really good way to watch movies right what's now. That, Mike? All, we, all we can do is we'll go to a theater and pay money to watch it as you did. <laughs> I know, like movie, suckers, right? absolute suckers. Well, we bought the DVD and then watched it at home. Oh, okay. He, wa- he bought the DVD and then we watched it at home. But a lot of people go to theaters to watch movies. It's true. It's the way movies are meant to be seen, according to Cineplex. <laughs> Sean Parker of Napster and Facebook fame has uh, has an idea that might change all this. What? Yes. And we've actually talked about this before on the show. If we if we buy into a system like this where yeah. you can pay a price to stream a movie on opening day to your own living room. Mm-hmm. Really? How much would that cost? They're proposing fifty dollars. <laughs> fifty dollars really? for the privilege of streaming a movie to your home on opening night. Can Can I just say, if I had four or five people that wanted to watch a movie, I would do this in a heartbeat. Yeah, I I could I could see it. Yeah, and this yeah. thing, I think you need at least two people paying for it, if not more. But I think two would be like the bare minimum depends on the movie but yeah i think you need at least two to make it worth yeah paying that i think you wouldn't watch it alone no that that would be a little uh, much the the idea is that they stream they would stream the movie to a set-top box so like you you don't just stream it to a computer or an ipad you buy like a you know the android tv type box that we talked about on the show last week yeah where it's dedicated to streaming this type of content mm-hmm. uh through an app or whatever and 
you know anti-piracy so that you don't you can't rip the movie once you stream it and that kind of thing um but it's it's an interesting idea and we'll we'll see where it goes i'm intrigued though yeah because i i think this is the future of cinematic experience yeah i agree with you at least for the most part like i i think there'll always be a a spot for oh for sure yeah yeah i i think they're gonna have to start accommodating for for this type of thing because yeah unless you have you know something like the avengers or star wars or uh lord of the rings or that type of franchise where people are gonna you know flood to the theaters and you know fill seats for weeks on end then you're not going to have that kind of uh demand for movies going forward i don't think but but then that being said how many people are going to pay money to stream just your b-list you know celebrity movie i i I don't know right Mm -hmm. so it's it's one of those things where theaters rely on the ticket sales of the big movies to pay their bills but if they're able to stream it then they're losing that revenue potentially right so and then they were saying that there's some sort of uh revenue sharing where the theater chains would get so the distributor would, would take 20 percent of the fee and the company itself called the screening room would take 10 percent of the fee I don't know where the other 70% is going <laughs> <laughs> to the ether, I guess those horrendous, uh, those horrendous streaming costs. Yeah, apparently it's, it's very expensive to <clears throat> send data so far as I remember. As, as far as we've been led to believe super anyway. expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like shipping gold leaf by the pony express. I think is what it's analogous to. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. it's cents per gigabyte rob cents <laughs> you're right so it makes sense <laughs> to charge a few dollars a gigabyte yep i i'm honestly i'm gonna figure out the title of this movie that i'm thinking of <laughs> but googling is proving totally unhelpful <laughs> uh, well knowing google search algorithms I- you should probably use that movie that is there will be blood but not See if that gets you anything. Definitely. Or like title confusion, blood horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I have no idea. Um, but yeah, th- this whole screening room thing, like, I love the idea. Like, I really do love it. But it is going to stop so fast because no matter how much copy protection you put on a movie it will immediately get pirated if you are allowing people to stream it in like it will get pirated in whatever quality they let you stream it at it will be up on the internet within one hour (laughs) of the first stream being available versus the six hours it takes now (laughs) i mean (laughs) if if a screener leaks that's one thing right but if you're having like a camera footage video no like that's not a good experience that's like i need to see this movie I don't have $10. I'm willing to go through a very subpar experience in order to see this. <laughs> but this could be like, this could, you could get all the audio. So if, if it was set up through 5.1 audio or anything like that, this could give you a perfect stream of the, the movie. Right. So and, and some people, some people have 
the theater set up in their basement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which would be like amazing yeah. to actually see like a release movie. The, the only thing I think that the only way this could work would be like if the copies were somehow watermarked. You'd have to agree to have like your like an ID number on the video somehow. But even then, it's probably pretty easy to get rid of. I don't I don't know. Yeah, just digitally edited it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a perfect system. I would love it if it could work, but I, I think that piracy would prevent it. Unless they were fine with, you know, if you're going to pay $50, it's okay that you could pirate it. Like, I don't know. Right. Like you said, it, it is already happening, the piracy, so maybe it's fine. Like, maybe they're just okay with the, the cutoff of yeah, just making They'd rather this. make money at it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Hopefully, I mean, the, it did work. Like, things like iTunes... The fact that the iTunes store exists means that a bunch of people that would have theoretically looked for other ways to get music just click the thing to pay a bit of money to get it. So it's not a crazy idea. It just seems like it might fail miserably. So uh, we have a story here that that is kind of still developing about artificial intelligence. And... We all kind of wanted to talk about it. Nick specifically didn't want to lead the story about this, uh, the AlphaGo project and the AI made by Google that is powering this, uh, this five, five match series between a computer and a human playing the, the board game Go. Is it, is it a board game? I guess it's like, yeah, is chess it's a, a board, board game? game? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem the same strategy board game maybe it's not it's not monopoly it's yeah, not a monopoly exactly <laughs> so for for some background the the computer and the i guess the grandmaster i don't know if they call him a grandmaster but the grandmaster <laughs> equivalent of go are playing a five game series of go uh they just finished the fourth game as we record on sunday i think the, the fourth game was on saturday or like it's i think it's in korea so it, the time is different because i think it happened like late last night and the computer won all the first three games of the best of five, but they're playing all five games. And the human won the fourth game, which was kind of seen as a big, like, oh, you know, computers, no matter how good they are, they're not infallible. Suck it! <laughs> yeah. Go humanity! <laughs> but so it won, which kind of, it kind of parallels the, the Watson Jeopardy uh, tournament that happened um, probably a couple of years ago now where the humans could theoretically score some points, but it's just like the computer, or the raw power of the computer and the internet is just pretty much unbeatable in the aggregate. So I don't know, Nick, you had some parallels you wanted to draw to the IBM Deep, or Deep Blue uh, chess match. In one of the first games, the computer program actually made an error and just made an erroneous move. Right. Huh. Um, but when it did that, like it just threw Gary Kasparov for a loop mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he didn't realize that there were mistakes in the code or whatever. He just thought that the computer saw something that he didn't. Right. Oh. When in actuality, it had just, you know, kind of goofed on something. Mm-hmm. Right. And so... I think he forfeited that match or something like that because he was just like, you know, completely flustered. Yeah. Hmm. But then he got, he went home that night 
and he looked at or like they had some simulation programs mm. and he looked at that and through the simulation program after that move there was a scenario in which he could have been checkmated by deep blue in 20 moves right and so, or you know 17 20 somewhere in that range and so like the best players can see like maybe 10 moves into the future you're supposed sure. to see five into the future if you're going to be competitive about it mm-hmm. and so kasparov was left for with the rest of the tournament with the impression that deep blue could see like 20 moves into the future so Aww. he just kept getting completely and totally flustered by it mm. huh. so like you were talking about how the guy in the go tournament was uh like he he lost the first game and then went okay now i can relax the he lost the tournament he lost the first three okay yeah and so i mean that's one of the things that computers are good at like computers don't Mm -hmm. get emotional they just they just kill it right yeah and that's one of the benefits of the, the computers. Yeah. The interesting difference between Deep Blue and this, the AlphaGo, is that chess is a solved game. They, like the computer knows all the possible combinations of chess, it knows all the possible games. It's, it runs through Does every it? possibility. It, it, I don't think it necessarily was at the time, but it is now, as uh, far as I know. I was going to say, because it's, as far as I understand it, Deep Blue had a search algorithm in which it would focus on outcomes likely to lead to success by yeah, whatever yeah. heuristic they were using. Mm-hmm. But you can't go through every single possibility because that's just monumental. If you're yeah. well, not if it's a timed game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I, th- I'm pretty, maybe it's checkers. That's a solved game and maybe chess is just slightly less, but anyways, checkers the, the, would make a lot more sense. Yeah. The, the difference being that uh, AlphaGo has a neural network and AlphaGo is a much more complex game than chess is. And so they're, they're saying that there's something like that the number of game combinations are more than the atoms are in the universe. Like there is just yeah. such a complex game that there's yeah. two, two times 10 to the 170th power. <laughs> yeah. Legal game position outcomes. Yeah. In which? In Go. In Go. Which is and and the number of atoms in the universe is ten to the eighty. Yeah, so there's so just there's, a Google times more. Well, it's it's, it's a s- squared amount. Yeah, yeah, over yeah. a squared amount yeah. of atoms in the universe. Yeah. yeah, it's just insane. And so, yeah, you you can't even compare the complexities of having to deal with this. But the whole point is that it it, it does try to see a few moves ahead. It tries to see as far ahead as it possibly can, but it, it is willing, the computer is willing to kind of go off on tangents that no human ever would just because there are strategies that have been shown to be the best possible strategies. And one of the things that the, the go grandmaster was saying after the first three is that he knows that he knows now that the computer has weaknesses, the the program has weaknesses. And if he can figure out how to exploit them, then maybe he could, could go and and actually do that and so what happened in the fourth game they were saying i was reading this really detailed i'll try to find the link to it actually a really detailed story of of the tournament and the, specifically the fourth game where the human won um 
And he was saying there was one crucial move where he did something kind of almost bizarre. Like he made a move. And from that point on, the, 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 the guys who were watching the, the processing of, of the AlphaGo machine were saying at that, that was the turning point for the computer. And when it suddenly, it had been winning and had, had a lead and then it kind of lost it. And the, the computer is actually designed to, to not fight to the death. It's not designed to go, okay, now I have literally 0% chance of winning. I give up because that would just be horribly frustrating for any human. And so it was designed to give up around when it has a 20% chance of victory because it's the go is the kind of game where you slowly build up, but like only having 20% chance of victory means that it would take a long time to claw your way back to winning. Right. And so that was at at that point it forfeited, but it was like, this like a five hour match. It's crazy how, like how complicated go is and how long the matches can take. Even like that's a, a speed game you get a certain amount of time i think it was like an hour or something on on your kind of speed clock and Mm -hmm. then once that time runs out you get 60 seconds per move and then like there there are things like you can take a timed break or if you commit time fouls like time violations where you take too long to move the time gets cut from 60 seconds of move down to 30 seconds of move and so at the time that he won the fourth game he was down to he had two strikes on his 60 second uh thing and he'd uh, like he'd used all his time whereas the computer still had like 10 minutes left on its regular game clock so like it was just mm. it was way better at time management and but the the human still managed to pull the switch and and win mm. so it kind of speaks to yeah the flexibility of humans the human brain versus computers that are kind of rigidly going to go after what seems like the best possible scenario at the time and and could theoretically be kind of outsmarted in the end it's- yeah one of the other interesting things about watching machines compete with humans is that humans play, well, chess anyway, but there are a lot of games where humans play just in a way that a machine might never do. Mm-hmm. Because, like, there, I think it's, it is chess where there are so many strategic moves. Yeah. Where, like grandmasters can just glance at a board and they could easily redraw everything there. Cause they'd be yeah, like, Oh, yeah. you're in the fourth move of a <laughs> yeah. pigeon gambit or whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so like humans have such well-defined strategies to these things, but a machine isn't limited to those, to those yeah. known outcomes. Yeah. And apparently sometimes like what a what a human player will do to try and beat a machine is just behave more chaotically than they would otherwise. Right. Like open up more possibilities so the machine has to slow down and think more. Right. But it's it's really interesting. Also, I'm reminded of a uh there's a story about a hockey player, and he was saying like you know, he was a good hockey player, but he said, you know, if I went down to beer league or college level or something like that, I probably wouldn't get as many points as I do because I'm used to playing with other people that also know the game at a very, very high Mm. level. So when an attacker is coming at me, I know that he's probably going to do these things because that's the well-established way to play. But if you were in hockey or if you were in college or beer league or whatever, 
you have no way of knowing what the person with the puck is going to do because yeah. they just don't know the game like you do. Mm. Yeah. I think poker is very similar too. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're playing poker with professionals and then you play with someone who's like never played before or has played like three times, it's like you have no chance because you'd never expect someone to, you know, bet that way with that hand. Mm-hmm. So you fold and then they have nothing. Yeah. And they don't they're not it's not like they're bluffing, they just don't know how to play. Yeah. Like they're so or play the same way you do. It's not about knowing how to play, but they don't play the same yeah. way you do. So it's not a predictable and <laughs> and kind of easy thing to do it turns i benefit so much from that it it turns out that beginner's luck is just the monte carlo approach to play yeah yeah (laughs) i i've found that so with poker i find that if i do win it's by playing uncharacteristically because there's no way i could win by strategy because i don't know the strategy but even when it came like mike and i used to play hockey all the time just out and oftentimes you'd get kind of guys who were on team Mm -hmm. they were on our age but they've been playing hockey like real organized organized hockey hockey, yeah for years and we could sometimes get the better of them just because we did something that they weren't expecting yeah whereas the majority of the time they would just go around us or they would take the puck away but we could get in there with a little weird move and yeah it's the same thing for me in most sports when i play against somebody who is like very they know exactly what to do for the sport like they they would destroy a a player who knows the same things that they do about the sport, but isn't necessarily as good. Whereas like when I play volleyball on Thursdays, I can go up for a block where I just, I literally jump up. There's no, there's no form here. There's no strategy. (laughs) I jump up with one palm and I just put my hand where I think the ball is going to be when they hit it. And like, I just end up palming, like blocking with one hand, which is nothing that any trained volleyball player would ever do, but it works enough that i'm going to keep doing it because they don't right. they don't see it coming but yeah it's it's not something that would be part of any they expect winning strategy. You to just like do this like hand straight up yeah you're not supposed like to just yeah try to you're supposed to try to block the most area in front of right where they're trying to hit but if i just kind of strategically try to guess where they're going to go and just put my hand there it works right. a surprising amount of the time soccer goalie style yeah <laughs> so <clears throat> we'll have to see i'm interested to see what happens with game five i'm not sure when it is i think it's probably like tonight overnight kind of daytime or evening in korea and so uh it'll be interesting to see if the the human player will be able to actually come back and at least maintain some dignity be like yeah i'm still pretty good <laughs> i'm still second best at least yeah So uh, thank you for listening to this week's Future Chat. We'll be back right here next week with more science and tech talk. And you can head to unwindmedia.com slash futurechat for past episodes of the show and much more. See you next time. Ciao. Toodaloo. I guess what we're going to do now is go to our our after show. I don't know how long this is going to take. I'm guessing you guys don't want to talk for hours about this, uh, about the self-driving car, the Google car that got in a crash, but... There's a few things that I want to say, and I'm sure there are a couple of things that you guys each want to say about this. Um, I'm going to maybe what I'll do is I'll post a link to the original future chat tweet where the conversation kind of went on so people can can follow don't down do the train. That. Just just don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm going to I'm going to do that. And then if people are interested to hear the back chat, just so we don't have to kind of cover all the ground. Um, but where we left it, I think on Twitter, I'll at least summarize where I left it and you guys can add your, your thoughts. We really want to figure out, we want to 
decide or at least kind of state our positions on what what this means for the next 50 crashes that a self-driving car has. That's at least what I want to try to do. So this crash, we we have now, we covered last week the details of the crash. But for me, it wasn't really crystallized what happened until I saw the footage. And what I really, really want is actually a third person's perspective, like a traffic camera or something, not a camera that's mounted right. on the bus. Like I want to see, what I really want to see, I guess, is Google's, the Google car's environmental scan of how, just like how close they were, how it, the bus's trajectory could have changed, how much room there was. Cause like, I don't know if you guys have seen their, their simulated, like their, the environmental thing where it's, it's almost like radar, but in, yeah, yeah, I've around seen that. the car. Oh, I think I have seen that actually. Yeah. So it, at least a simulation yeah, how it identifies it. what's around it. Yeah. Yeah. Because to me, there's absolutely unless, unless there's something because the the whole thing of this crash seems to be that they decided very recently to treat some of these lanes that are actually one lane. There's no lane divider. They decided to treat them as two lanes, mm-hmm. and that was really the crux of this. Is well, that it was that's a what? thing that happens with very wide lanes, though. It is, yeah. No, no, uh, and it's they were saying in the in the article that it's crucial for the for development of this that it be able to treat roads not just as rigid things that it ha- you have to treat the road as other traffic treats it. Yeah. And so it was in the right half of this mega lane, this lane that is f- yeah. big enough for two cars to fit in, mm-hmm. but it was, tri- there was an obstruction in the right half of the lane, like the, some sandbags around a uh, storm drain. And so it was trying to go around them and probably I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt and say, it was probably trying to give it a wider berth than it needed to get around these these uh the storm drain and to me the way i watch especially the perspective of the bus driver the bus driver had no idea what was happening until mm-hmm. it had already happened he was he was taken sure. completely by surprise and i i actually went through uh i mentioned on twitter that i did a bit of research so what i actually did is i went and got I went to the San, is it San Bernardino, I think, um, the, the traffic, uh, the public transit systems website to figure out how wide the bus is. I went to the Lexus, uh, Wikipedia entry to see how wide the, the model of Lexus is. And then I went on Google street view or not street view, I guess, but just a really zoomed in map to estimate how wide the lane is. And it really seems like there there's plenty of room for a bus and that car to coexist in that massive lane without crashing into each other. Like it seemed like there was at least two or three feet of play. Like it was like, it's like 16 or something feet wide. And the bus is only eight and a half and the car was only like 5.9 or something feet wide. It just seems to me like, as I mentioned last week, the yes, the car is technically at fault. Nobody is arguing that. But I feel like the bus bears some responsibility, not legally, but responsibility for actually like going into the car. It's not like the car, the bus was going and the car drove into the side of it. It was more like the car was slowly two miles an hour inching forwards or inching like at an angle forwards trying to get around the storm drain. And the bus came through 
slightly overlapping with the space the car was in and kind of dragged all along the side of it. Like if you look in the at the end of the video, there's a couple snapshots and you can see the the car left streaks all down the side of the bus like the bus i think technically and again i would want to see more pictures i would want to see more information but it seems like the bus actually hit the front of the car and then kind of dragged alongside it like like the no 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 okay I, i'll finish uh, the parallel that i would draw is to like the titanic and the iceberg the google car is the iceberg and the the bus is the titanic like it kind of hit and then just dragged along the entire side of it. And it doesn't really strike me as as much a side swiping as in, unless I'm just misunderstanding the definition of the word side swiping. It doesn't it strikes me more that the the bus's responsibility to avoid this collision is much more than the car's responsibility to not kind of obstruct a lane. Mike, you obviously disagree okay. with me. Okay. 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 I- I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I, I think I better understand your position mm-hmm. now that we're talking about it live and in real time. Yep. I I agree with everything that you said, except for the fact that you're saying that the bus bears more responsibility. I didn't say more. Because I said some. No, you, you said the bus had more of a responsibility to avoid it than the car had. <sighs> Yeah. To avoid. That's what that's very what you said. Close, are, you, are you redacting that? I guess I would modify to say it's very, very close. If it I don't know which is ahead, which bears more like Okay. Yeah. Okay, can we can we all agree that the bus had the right of way? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So it, a similar situation in this with this case is when you have construction or an accident and a lane just closes off, right? So then that lane of traffic has to merge into the other lane, right? Mm-hmm. You guys have all been in that situation yep. before, right? Okay. So that is a situation where technically the the free-flowing lane has the right of way yep. and and the cars waiting to come in need to like literally wait for that car to stop mm-hmm. and let them come in, yep. right? So this is one of those situations where the car, the Google car should have, you know, indicated it wanted to merge. So, you know, Which angled its nose in, put its blinker on. Because as far as we know, this the this car didn't put his blinker on, thinking like showing that it wanted to the, change lanes the, again. The because Google yeah, car, as far as it was, was it's on. not changing lanes though, because it's all within the same yeah. lane. Well, the, but that that's the other issue is that is it is it technically a different? The Google lane? car's I, blinker was on. Okay, yeah. so okay, so the, the car indicated it wanted to merge. At that point, it should stop, wait for mm-hmm. actual wait for traffic to stop, and then go. Yeah. From what the driver, like the person driver, and what the car's diagnostics indicated was that the car expected the bus to let it in yeah, yeah. and that's and that's west where this thing went wrong is you can't assume a car is going to do something right. you actually wait for it to do it or you aggressively shoot yeah, in there exactly. and not leave room yeah. to get hit so i don't know the, that's, this that's right this at. happened to me yesterday on the highway did you sideswipe a bus <clears throat> i did not sideswipe any buses <laughs> I was the car that was in the lane. Okay. I was going relatively fast and a car just that was, I don't know, 10 feet, 15, 20 feet ahead of me just decided it was, it wanted to be in my lane. And I would have hit it if I had not changed my trajectory or speed. I had the right of way, but I also have the responsibility to not cause an accident. Were you on the 417? Yes. So, so Rob, okay. did you honk and give the guy? I a did finger? honk. 
I didn't Kay. I didn't make any gesture, but I was like, uh, okay. excuse me, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, right, right. Okay, okay. hold on. Yeah. Guys, guys, I've used the talking stick. Come on now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so first point on that is this continues to support my hypothesis that Ottawa drivers are not capable of handling a 400 series highway. No, they're not. They just, I've never seen such bad behavior mm-hmm. as on the 417 and the northern part of the 416, where you routinely see cars driving down the wrong way on the 416. Seriously? Oh, wow. Yeah. We've seen it a few times now. Wow. It's just, I don't know what it is about northern latitudes within Ontario, but. <clears throat> It just completely cripples the ability to handle northern series. Northern in air quotes. Northern southern. <laughs> more northwestern than yeah. the four hundred one usually travels. More than more than Toronto. <laughs> so yeah. if you're yeah, it's just you get too far away from the four hundred series, you just don't know how it's supposed to work anymore. Yeah, I just oh, yeah that I appears have, to be what happens. I have a bunch of experience with cars. Like since I've gotten, since I got my full license, probably a little over a year ago now. I, I can't remember. Uh, I have been, I've been struck by the amount of people, the number of people that get onto an on ramp, and then I don't think "struck" is the right word to use. It, <laughs> but it kind of is. Shocked, perhaps. It's, yeah, it's fascinating to me the number of people that get on an on ramp. At six, at fifty or sixty, and then stay at sixty, just the entire length of the ramp, like right in front of me. Right, 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 right. yeah. And then so I'm sitting there waiting until I can merge before they do, and then just gun it to get up to the yeah. speed of traffic. Like it's, it's yeah. crazy. And so this is the kind of thing that the the Google car has to not think that it's dealing with perfect drivers. It has to deal with imperfections. And that that's mm-hmm. the problem that it couldn't handle is that in, in a reasonable situation, the collision wouldn't have happened because the bus would have just not hit it. Like that, that car, if you watch the video in slow motion, like I did that car over the course of the 20 or so, maybe even more than that, that, that you can see ahead, the 20 or so feet, 30 feet that the bus has to kind of adjust its speed. The, the Google car moves maybe six inches. Like it would have been very, very close to a collision, even if that car had just had its blinker on and was sitting there not moving. It would have been super, super close. The fact that it was inching forwards like a couple inches every five seconds is not what made that collision dangerous. It was the fact that the bus was super, super close. There's also like watching the footage of what happened. It's also totally like what I hate about bus drivers. <laughs> yes. Because they just, they are operating a very heavy vehicle, but they do not operate it as if it's a very heavy vehicle. No, not at all. Like, so what happens is it was approaching a stop way too quickly, had to slam on the brakes, and then, you know, traffic proceeds as normal because had he actually been traveling at a reasonable speed, he wouldn't have had to, you know, slam on the brakes like that. Mm Mm-hmm. But it left a wide open space that the Google car then thought it could get into. Yeah. Because I could totally see the algorithmic mistake where it goes, oh, that bus is clearly stopping and letting me in because the bus was definitely stopping. But then, you know, bus driver. So 
sees that a car wants to get in front of it and the bus is like, oh, I think not, sir. I don't, I don't believe I'll be letting you in. And so just jams on the accelerator. And by that point, the algorithm has made its mistake. And mm. that was it. Like, I don't know. London to the amount of times I leapfrogged with an LTC bus was just, it's way too high. Yeah. I'm assuming you're talking about when you're on a bike. Yeah. 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 Because okay. I didn't actually drive in London that right. many times. Yeah. I definitely leap, leapfrogged London Transit Commission vehicles because, yeah. man, they slow down, they stop, they collect people, and then they just hammer on the accelerator because they're like, I need to get to the next stop before that bicycle does. Screw Can him. I- <laughs> so. I have a fun anecdotal story of a bus, like a, a um, articulating bus and a bike that I saw. I was a pedestrian at the time. So the bus was pulling up to a stop, like right up to the stop. So there was no room for, for any bike to get through. But there was a bike that was up alongside the bus and it literally like cut in to the bike area, like the, the area that the bike would have been using. And then started to move parallel to the curb like it it effectively squeezed out the bike the cyclist had to jump get like get off his bike and jump out of the lane so that it didn't get just like clobbered by the bus like it was it was ridiculous i've never seen a bus driver act so recklessly was the bike trying to pass the bus in the same lane the bike was on the like on the right side of the bus as the bus was coming up to the stop and so the bus came up to the stop but the they were already beside one another, but the bike but, was near the end, like near the back of the bus. Right, but the bike shouldn't have been trying to squeeze past the bus to begin. It wasn't with trying to the squeeze; they were lane. just ride. They were just going side by side, and then there was a there happened that's to be a bus legal. stop. Right, that's not legal. Though. What do you mean that's not legal? Yeah, it is. the bike and bus should be sharing the same lane. It what? What do you mean the bike? The bike rides along the right side of the road. What? Not next to other vehicles. It gets its own space. What space? So someone, its own lane? You th- you think a bike downtown should just take its own lane no matter where it is? Yes. No. <laughs> what, Nick? I am I not right here? Do, do don't bikes get their own lane? So normally, like, there's a bike lane. Yes, in, like that in some circumstances. No, 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 no. no that's lane. not like like they get their own width. Like a bike should be treated as a full width vehicle. A bike gets one meter. The for many obstructions. bike is legally entitled to take the lane. Like, mm-hmm. it is right. a vehicle. That's what I mean. Right. Yep. But, like, it's... The bike also rides as close to the curb as practicable. Right. And so if yeah. there's a... Right. So if for, there's for a clear path... It. Right. Like, I, I don't know the actual legality of it, but if there's a clear path straight ahead, as there often is when you're riding a bicycle... Yeah. Like, they often take it. If I'm approaching a stop, though, yeah, like a stop-and-go situation, I routinely get away from the curb and into, like, the actual yeah. lanes of traffic, especially if it's a four-way stop and I need to participate in the turn-taking behavior that happens. Because, yeah, yeah otherwise, things like that could happen. Although... Yeah. But, Robin, in your story, someone wasn't following the rules properly uh, well in that case Sounds i would like. assume it was the bus the bus overtook the cyclist 
That's what I said. And then just pulled ahead and cut it off. Right. And then took the rest of the lane. (laughs) Right. Which is horrible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that the, the, any AI in a car will need to consider other drivers. Like, like we all, I think agreed if both, if the bus had been driven by an AI as well, there would have been no, not even remotely a crash. No, but what uh, what the algorithm failed to take into account is that bus drivers are dicks. <laughs> like, I think there was that one time when an when a OC Transpo bus got hit by a train. Yeah, and I was like, I'm not at all surprised. That totally seems like something they do. Mm-hmm. Like try and beat a train across the tracks. Yeah, apparently there were a lot of close calls with that one stop where the yeah. where it had to cross the tracks. Yeah, and then it finally yeah. crashed because, of course, that was going to happen. Yeah. But, yeah. I just remember when that I, news came out, I was unsurprised knowing OC transport drivers. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, I saw some tweets from people, someone, on, I guess, a joke they're making about AI and how a lot of companies now consider AI to be just a really elaborate, nested, if-then, <laughs> conditional... <laughs> And that it sounds, it almost sounds like you need to get to that point where, you know, you, you literally need to treat case like these specific cases where, you know, if this vehicle is trying to overtake me in a lane where there's no divider, then do this because you almost can't like create AI that can recognize that for itself. Yeah. Like obviously they can, because that's where AI is going, but yeah. So I think, I think we're a lot closer than we were. I hope, like, I'm not trying to say that the Google AI bears no responsibility. Obviously it needs to learn and and figure stuff out. But to me, it just, the whole situation reads like a lesson in the fact that perfect drivers are not a thing. And obviously buses are heavy and not as maneuverable as as a car would be or as as smaller vehicles although they try to be yeah exactly and that's and that's why i think the problem is that it was trying to be this yeah. uh, much smaller vehicle than it was yeah also like cabs like taxis <laughs> i think what i've what i've decided what i've noticed is that bus drivers and taxi drivers they drive like NHL players play in the playoffs. <laughs> like they know exactly what they can get away with in that situation. Even though it's technically not allowed, they know exactly what they're able to do and they just push the limits as much as possible. Right. Yeah, that that really is a good uh a good I guess metaphor. Metaphor, yeah. Simile. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you guys have anything so. to add on the on the um, no self driving thing? I I have to review some highway traffic acts. I think. <laughs> um, I guess I should tell you guys. I'm probably buying a bike, maybe as soon as today, but probably not today. Ooh, yeah, exciting! A giant bike, not. Like a regular sized bike by Giant. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I'm 
I'm going to put a link to it. It's called the Giant Escape One. I'm very excited. Good. I really want a like a road bike, like the next level up, but it's almost twice as expensive. And uh, I'm going to wait a few years. Do bikes have good resale value? If you eh. take decent care of them. But, uh, I mean, yeah, they definitely do. It just depends. It really depends on the, the atmosphere around bikes, around new bikes at the time. If if they if the new bike is kind of the next thing, like has the next generation of technology, maybe it's less likely. But if they're basically just iterating on the same thing, which which most of them tend to do, then they will keep their value pretty well. I'll put a link. If, it, if anyone is interested in bikes as much as Nick is or even less than Nick is and wants to tell me I should get a better one, I'll put a link to the bike that I'm looking at in our notes. So what's the, sorry, the, what's the fork made out of? I think they said it was carbon fiber, but. Yeah, it says composite. So I'm assuming carbon fiber, but. There's, there's three levels of escape. That I saw. This well, the, this is the highest. There's also one, a zero so. level, so there are four levels. Where's it? I haven't I haven't seen Escape Zero. I have to look that up. But yeah, this was the kind of the highest end Escape one they had. It's kind of like hybrid with a slight roadie preference. Yeah, that's that's definitely a hybrid. But the yeah the other one I was looking at, uh, the road bike has hydraulic disc brakes, which just sounds so awesome. <laughs> And so that I think my goal is going to be when we have a house that has an actual spot to lock up a bike in a garage or something like a a much safer place. This is the bike that I'd like to switch to. But uh, that's a dream for now. Well, dream on, Rob. I would like to thank the lovely Kaya for allowing me or tolerating really me coming into the living room so that I could get a better connection, even though I usually stay out of the way and over there. Did I ever complain to you guys about how terrible the technology the liberals were using was, is, is, was? You might have mentioned to me at some point. Mm. Yeah, it's awful is the long and short. And the greens have nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Is that, is that better than bad? Yes. Yes. Because like, I don't know. Imagine you, you come up to a group of people and they're trying to hammer nails into a board and they're using potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I mean, they're driving the nails in. They are having some su- success, but you're like, guys, have you heard of hammers? Like you could use a hammer and they're like, I don't know, man, we've been using this potato thing for quite a while. We're pretty good with the potatoes. And it's like, are you, are you really like, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And I'm like, do you see all the problems with the potato right now? They're like, well, I mean, it's not perfect, but, but I mean, we're, we're, we're going with the potato right now. We paid a lot of money for the potatoes. We're going to go with the potatoes. It's like, cool. 
I don't see any situation where Potato could hammer a nail in, but... And then... <laughs> well, I mean, you go edge on, you hit it broadside, you, you go through enough potatoes, you're going to get it eventually. It's going to take, take a stupid amount of effort, but, I mean, you're going to be able to do it. And then you go to the Green Party, and they just, by sheer fluke and happenstance, have driven one nail into a board... But they're looking around and going, hey, we got all these nails and we got this board. But like, how do you get the nail into a board? And you go, have you ever tried a hammer? And they're like, no, tell me more about this hammer solution you have. <laughs> it's like, interesting. I could use hammers to drive the nails in. I've just gone black, haven't I? <laughs> It looks like you don't want to be identified. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, that's the best. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> apart. It looks like a little 16 minute special. Yeah. <laughs> I can't discuss what I know about the Deep Blue game without revealing my identity. Bobby Fisher, is that you? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, 